Saturday School is brought to you by First Republic Bank. The world is changing and your needs are evolving. As your focus turns to what matters most to you and your community, First Republic remains committed to offering personalized financial solutions that fit your needs. From day one, you'll be connected with a dedicated banker who will serve as your primary point of contact throughout your relationship with a bank. They'll be here to listen to you, understand your values, and meet you on your financial journey. Your banker can offer you solutions that support your goals at any stage, from setting up a personal checking account to refinancing household debt to buying a first home. As your needs evolve, you can call or email your banker at any time for the support you need. Because First Republic believes what matters to you matters most. Learn more at firstrepublic.com. That's firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC Equal Housing Lender. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is our last episode of our seventh season where we, in 2020, decided it was a good idea to tackle Asian American interracial cinema. I don't know about you, Brian, but I am surprised that we made it. We made it. (laughs) Our goal was to finish this before 2020, and it is December 28th. So we haven't quite finished it because we have to record it and I have to edit and I have to put it up. But it looks like it's possible. I believe in us, <laughs> which just mostly means I believe in you. <laughs> we've had we've had quite a season. I think it's been different than any of our previous seasons. Yeah, because it's most of our seasons are about like a genre or something or kind of character. Uh, but this is really about a topic. And especially in 2020, I think another reason we wanted to make sure we got the season done in 2020 is because it really speaks to a contemporary issues that define our time. I remember when you emailed me because our last season had taken a long time. (laughs) And then we had some ideas for the next season, but none of them foresaw a huge pandemic and racial reckoning. So I remember getting that email from you and you were like, should we try to tackle something that would be relevant to this? Should we do something like cross-cultural cinema or Asian American films where you're like stuck at home? Oh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I remember being like scared by the first one (laughs) and being like, are there 10 films where Asians are stuck at home? (laughs) Can we do a season about like families stuck at home watching DVDs? (laughs) (laughs) But then really just quickly knowing like, oh, no, no, we have to do this. I think a lot of people and Asian Americans specifically were asking, where's our place in this, right? Like, what do we do? I mean, to me, it's a more existential question than even that. It was like, why do we even bother to do Asian American stuff? Like, how important is that in the grand scheme of things? And I think that, at least for me, like somebody who whose work for instance, with the San Diego Asian Film Festival, so committed to Asian American representation and politics. Is that really what we should be spending all of our energies on? And especially like conceiving the the season during the summer, when questions of Asian American complicity were really on the forefront. Yeah, I had us wondering, what's the point of Saturday school? As we were conceiving the season, I had always imagined 
that it would culminate with today's film, which is Down a Dark Stairwell by Ursula Liang, a film that is a 2020 film, both in the sense that it came out in 2020, it world premiered at the True False Film Festival before the shutdown happened. But also it's a 2020 film in that it is about the shooting of a black man by a police officer. And so this question of like, what is the role of Asian American cinema? This film actually helped me work through a lot of that. And then doing the season actually and thinking about the history that led up to it also helped me, like assured me that there is more to Asian American cinema than just like making sure we tell stories of like people who want to drink boba. (laughs) Which is me. And I'm not really looking for stories about myself. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's like what we've been saying all along where there's comfort in looking back at the history and understanding that we don't have to create anything new. You know what I mean? Like, this is stuff that people have been fighting for and discussing for decades. And maybe we haven't been paying attention, but now we can. Right. No need to freak out. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a freak out. (laughs) Our listeners who have been around with us for a while, like, we started this podcast because we're two people who have been covering Asian American film for a very long time and we kind of wanted to share the films that we've liked over the years. So it it kind of came out of something that was very familiar to us. And I think as the seasons have progressed, we've, one, shown people that it's like, yeah, there's a lot of Asian American cinema, right? We've been able to do seasons where um, we're exploring films that I hadn't really seen. And I think this season was definitely like, there's a lot that I don't know and And I think like each step of the way, you sort of like take a deep breath and you're like, okay, I understand that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have like Jocelyn Luckett on as a guest and she's like, this is what people were doing in the 70s. And it's great to have Jocelyn's voice on it too, because she represents somebody who is, this is what she's been working on. Literally, we don't need to reinvent the wheel because she's been doing the work. We could just tap into her expertise. And just having someone like her say like, look, it'll be messy. How could it not be messy? And you're going to mess up. Yeah. Because I think that's kind of the scary thing about a lot of it, too, where it's like, you're going to say something wrong. I also just really like the fact that these films don't have to be perfect. Yeah. They don't have to have all of the politics aligned so that it could be perfectly useful for today, right? Like, yeah, that's an impossibility. It's too much to ask that of films today, let alone from the past. But there is still so much to learn from them, and I appreciate them for that. And then I guess for us too, it's like, okay, like for this season, all we have to do is show where we are today. That becomes more manageable. Yeah. Yeah. Should we do like a very quick recap? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. We started with the film Mississippi Triangle that was about the racial triangle in Mississippi where you have Chinese, black and white working class folks coming up together. How, as the generations went on, you could see the Chinese community getting kind of caught between this notion of like racial justice versus, oh, wait, maybe we can pass as white. And this is being made in the 1980s. Then we had our Jocelyn Luckett interview. Her research on ethnocommunications, a program at UCLA's film school that aimed to teach filmmakers of color on their own terms. It's in some ways about the interracial roots of visual communications which is now known as one of the the preeminent exhibitors and funders and educators of Asian American cinema. Next, we did Sayugu and the follow-up film Wet Sand. One was made like right after the LA uprising, and then the other one kind of looked back on it a decade later. That took us into the 90s, and then we revisited our old episode on Mississippi Miss Hala, a love story between an Indian American whose family was from Uganda 
and Denzel Washington. <laughs> then we got Faken the Funk, Dante Bosco, and Tatiana Ali. <laughs> it's about relationships, but it's like, it's the cross-cultural comedies that rely on stereotypes, but maybe like in a very 90s kind of way. I mean, it's sort of a fairy tale too, right? It's about Chinese kid who was adopted by a black family, so he thinks he's black. But what happens when he moves to another city where no one realizes that he was adopted by a black family? He's just this Chinese dude who uh, thinks he's black. Which also exists. <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah, true. <laughs> then we move into the, the learning, a documentary about teachers from the Philippines that come over to Baltimore. And then most of the students and administrators in the Baltimore public schools that we see are black. Then we go to American Revolutionary, the evolution of Grace Lee Boggs, who's become this icon of Asian American activism, also like solidarity between the Asian American and black communities. And Grace Lee, she's a part of history. Part of the fascination of this film is like, whoa, this person existed in the 1950s. Then we went to Lordville, which looked at our relationship with land. We're also thinking about the historical caretakers of this land, namely indigenous people. And what is the relationship between Asian Americans who are here as immigrants, as people who've lived here for generations, and those whose land has been taken from them, on which we stake a claim in something called America. And how weird that is, if you think about it. Then, our last episode, we did Signature Move. It's a rom-com about a Pakistani-American lesbian and a Mexican-American woman. It's another little bright light of like, hey, our differences are not so much differences at all. I mean, that's the power of genre films and rom-coms in particular. They help us work through what seem to be impossible contradictions in our society. Rom-coms are this utopic solution to all this. We wanted Utopia to be in here, too, because it allows us to imagine other kinds of futures and possibilities. For today's episode, we're actually talking about a film that you can't watch yet, but you will be able to watch in 2021. Ursula Liang's Down a Dark Stairwell. Why don't you tell me, because you probably had a hand in programming it when you first heard of this movie. I've been hearing about this film for a while. I remember being in New York City when these Peter Liang protests were happening. Really? Yeah, I remember like looking around thinking like, there are a lot of Asians in the streets. What is this? I remember like the Asian American community, or at least my friends were just looking at these protests thinking like, this isn't good, right? <laughs> so I started looking into this Peter Liang case and thinking, ooh, that's complicated. And then I found out that director Ursula Liang, who had made this wonderful documentary called Nine Man about Chinatown sports, heard that Ursula was making a documentary about the Kai Gurley's murder and the activism that's kind of sprouted out around Peter Liang afterwards. And I thought, whoa, that's, that's going to be a big one, this film. And it ended up playing the True False Film Festival, I think in March. I got to see it when it was submitted to the San Diego Asian Film Festival, and I was just taken aback. It was, I, I remember um, just being absolutely paralyzed watching this movie because... It's so well made, right? You're, you're at the edge of your seat. And I was horrified. Like, I, I, it, was, it was hard to watch. And I just wanted this, I wanted it to get to some place that I could stomach. Because just the political complexity of the Asian American community it was being revealed in a way that makes you uncomfortable. It makes you wonder, like, what is the point then? I'm dancing around what it's about. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was my reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Nine Man, which is a fantastic documentary that I also saw at the San Diego Asian Film Festival. I remember being there and watching her Q&A there, too. But yeah, but I remember thinking like, oh, wow, tackling Peter Liang's story is 
um, it would give me a headache just thinking about it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I feel like this film is not being celebrated enough for the difficulty of, of its production. So let's set up why this film makes me cringe, but like makes me invest so much emotionally and why this is like such a powerful accomplishment because of all that it manages to juggle. So the film is about the case of the killing of Akai Gurley, who is a, a black man who was killed in 2014 by the NYPD. He just happened to be in a dark stairwell in the pink houses in Brooklyn. And the person who fired the gun that killed Akai Gurley was a Chinese-American man named Peter Liang. So this is soon after the Eric Gardner case where the DA didn't charge or convict the cop who killed Eric Gardner. And then suddenly you have Peter Liang getting put on trial. He is charged for manslaughter amongst many other charges. And you see the black community stand up and say, once again, we have to see one of our own being slain by the police. And you also do see Asian Americans standing up and saying, hey, we need to stand up for black lives because this is what matters in our society. If, if there's no justice here, there's no justice anywhere. The weird wrinkle in all of this is that the Chinese American community asks a question that has never quite been asked before in cases like this, which is, wait a minute, you hadn't charged a single police officer of killing a black man until now. And this guy just happens to be a Chinese person. Is this a coincidence? Or is a Chinese police officer a convenient person through which you can say, hey, you know, we do hold ourselves accountable. So you have this Chinese community that's wondering if Peter Liang has become a scapegoat. And so they start joining into this chorus of what turns into protest. And this all kind of is like a, all right, we'll see what this takes us. And then where it takes us instead is this Chinese community starting to be pro-police and being perceived as a anti-black coalition. And then that's when I start sweating as the audience member, like... <laughs> Oh, why? <laughs> why does it devolve so seemingly easily into conservative anti-blackness? Yeah. So the film, part of it is Ursula and her filmmaking team follows the, the case as Peter Lang is put on trial. She also follows the protesters from different backgrounds. The black protesters, these kind of conservative Chinese-American protesters, as well as some like Asians for Black Lives protesters, and then some other people who don't quite fit anywhere in between all of this, who are also super interesting. All while keeping an eye on what's happening with Akai Gurley's family. And at the heart of all this is the fact that somebody was killed. Right, right. Yeah. I, I'm also curious, what was your reaction to this movie? Like just your initial visceral reaction to it? I think I had more preparation than you because I think I knew it would be painful. <laughs> like I was just like, oh God. So I was sort of like prepping myself for this because yeah. it's like, you know, it's a case that you know about. But to be honest, when I was watching the film, I was like, oh, there's actually a lot I didn't know about as much as I had kind of followed reactions to it. Knowing that a lot of Asian Twitter was horrified <laughs> by the um, Chinese American protests. Yeah. Um, but I actually wasn't aware of how big the protests were and how national they were yeah i was i didn't know that i, I was like how did i because i think it is something where as a asian american you kind of do want to look away but at the same time i really appreciated it because um it's different when you're watching someone who's asian american you know what i mean yeah it, yeah. it hits you different and maybe it is something where it's like 
you want to believe i think i don't know maybe this is me but like you still want to believe like before it got terrible that there was a gem of something where it made sense you know what i mean yeah, and... I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it, it, it does, because it's still the germ of something that I think is valuable. Yeah. Right? This idea that, I don't know, I think if the DA's office in New York did scapegoat Peter Lane because he's Asian, I feel like that is worth talking about. Right. But that's not mutually exclusive with the issues of, like, how to support the black community. And what's interesting is, like, like you're saying, like, in the beginning of the film, both of those sentiments are there amongst a lot of these Asian American protesters. They're saying, hey, we're not saying that Peter Lang should get off for this. What we're saying is that these are both issues and that they are both rooted in white supremacy. But you see it devolve, right? Yeah, this energy gets channeled in, oh, just all... Oh, oh all the wrong ways and it escalates and it becomes national and like you said like you just want to look the other way but what this film shows is if we look this other way those energies will run rampant without guardrails and part of it is because like chinese americans asian americans do feel like they're invisible in america because they are right but the, the expression of their desire for visibility is so it's just so misguided there are parts of it that make sense. Because the thing is, like, when you hear about stuff through Twitter and social media and, like, you know, like, clickbaity headlines, you do jump straight to, like, there's a whole bunch of Chinese Americans out there shouting, all lives matter. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's true, too, right? But it's like, how do they get there? Something that might have started as, like, there's an injustice there that's worth looking at. Yeah. Where does it start? And then once it becomes bigger, where does it go? And... There was this one scene that was really fascinating, and it was with the activists on behalf of Akai Gurley. They're coming up with protest chants. That's my favorite scene in the movie. <laughs> one of the leaders, her name is Kirby, she um, flags one of the protest chants because it uses the term model minority. Something about like brothers in blue and how the model minority can be guilty too. I'm so glad you brought up this scene. To me, this movie is about a black community that is invisible to Asians and an Asian-American community that's invisible to black people. And the reason they're invisible is not because of each other, but because of society and white supremacy and how like they've been left out of the media or our problems are not considered important. And so while I'm watching this movie, I'm just like craving for these sides to be able to find common ground. And the onus should be on the Asian community to see the black community. But in this moment where someone in the black community Kirby is, is able to say to her fellow comrades who are trying to figure out how to write this chant, for her to be able to say, hey, look, like, we don't want to alienate Asian Americans. This term model minority comes from someplace, and it's not a term that we should be using frivolously. Just to hear that, it's a version of feeling seen. And like the empowerment that you feel when you are seen, what better proof that Asian Americans should see the Black community then the power it feels like to be seen by them. Because throughout most of this movie, the black community does not see the Asian community. And again, like it's not really on them to see the Asian community at this moment. But despite all that, for Kirby to come out and say, hey, like, let's not throw that term around frivolously, was for me extremely powerful. Yeah, me too. So that there's kind of these glimmers of hope, right? Yeah. But that's before they saw all the Chinese-American protests you see it all crumble and you understand why. It's understandable how at some point it felt to the people on the ground that it is black people versus Chinese people. Even though I think we all know that that's not the issue here, but that was how it was posed. 
maybe even inadvertently by these Chinese protesters. I mean, a lot of them were saying, they constantly had to say, hey, look, we know that a Kai girlie was killed. And that's a problem. But then they'll go on and say things like, one crime, two tragedies. Right, right, right. No, it's not two tragedies. A Kai girlie's death is not the same as Peter Liang's being put on trial for killing a Kai girlie. Like, these two things are not remotely the same thing. They got caught up in, in the wrong energies is the only way I could think about it. Because I don't, I don't really know. If in the beginning of their case, of, the, of these Chinese-American protesters' case, is that the problem is with the DA's office, then how did that turn into, we need to support the police? To me, that's not a natural connection, right? To say, hey, why are you being racist against Peter Liang to all lives matter? Somehow, some energy blew them from that to that. And I wonder if it's because they found certain allies, like white police allies, to say, you know what, I support you. Every time these Chinese Americans are on the streets, I I need to say like these conservative Chinese Americans, because there are also progressive Chinese Americans that stand for black lives that we do see in the streets too. But anytime that there are these conservative Chinese Americans on the streets and there are cops on the side, kind of quote unquote like overseeing this protest, you just get the sense that these cops are supporting you. This is a different relationship between the police and the protest than we see in a Black Lives Matter protest where there are cops around. And we start feeling like, hmm, I think you have certain kinds of support that you're buying into, which is not the same as your original grievance. Yeah, like the original thing is like you guys are scapegoating us. Right, which potentially the NYPD is complicit in. Right. At some point, you're watching Peter Ling's mom in front of a microphone giving a speech to a crowd. And next to her, you see like, white people with Blue Lives Matter ribbons on them. I'm like, uh, how did this happen? Oh, I didn't even see that. But I mean, I think it was part of the strategy, these Chinese protesters, to constantly say like, hey, we grieve for Kai Gurley too. That gives them a certain kind of clout and a certain kind of moral stature. It's the way that they turn that into an equivalence, right? Like, just as you have been wronged, we have been wronged too. We want a place at the table. Just as there are these killings by the police, we do not get into Harvard. So you raise a really interesting connection. And this is this guy named Jack in this movie. So part of the issue in the film is that there are different generations. There are activists who have been doing the work for decades. And also like second generation, second, third, fourth generation Asian Americans. Yeah. And then you have this like first generation, people who just moved from places like China, who are in the United States under different kinds of circumstances. They're not reckoning with the fact that they could be killed by the police. And for them... They are very hungry to have a voice, a political voice. And so this guy Jack talks about, he remember that one time when on the Jimmy Kimmel show, there was a statement about killing Chinese people, a joke being made about killing Chinese people. And he says, oh, you know what? I don't like this. This makes me feel uncomfortable. And I feel like Chinese people are at the butt of a joke. I'm going to protest. And sort of like, okay, I mean, I don't know if this is really what you want to put all of your, this is what you want to stake your claim in, but sure, why not? And then he says, from there, our Chinese consciousness led us to things like fighting against affirmative action. Fighting Harvard to say affirmative action is wrong. And then you're like, oh. And then their next challenge is standing up a Peter Liang. And so you see like the way in which a certain kind of representational identity politics quickly devolves, quickly devolves into we are more important. And that's the affirmative action thing, right? Like if it hurts Asians, then we're against it. And so in this case, where they looked at the Peter Liang case and they see Asians being hurt, they're going to stand up against it. But like, how do we harness that kind of energy? Because the energy is still comes from a legitimate place that Asian Americans are not taken seriously in our society. Or worse yet, that they are like put in a disadvantaged position. 
how do we do that while still caring about other people who are put in these kind of situations who don't happen to be Asian? Yeah, because I mean, to be fair, I guess, there's also a scene of them doing work about hate crimes against Asian Americans. It can be directed in positive ways. Yeah, absolutely. Right, like, this is true, especially Asian American seniors, and that's what they're talking about. Like, Asian American seniors are just, for some reason, people feel like we can assault them in the streets. And there's evidence of this all the time. And we need to speak up against this. Unfortunately, you can't speak up for this and not also speak up against the assault and murder of innocent black people. So there's that guy, Jack, and I think he's like most representative of this sort of first generation and also like recent generation. They don't understand why their kids are all for Black Lives Matter. And this generational divide is really interesting. And the other interesting thing about them is that they organize on WeChat. And WeChat as this realm of one i mean it is an important resource for immigrants to be able to to share information with each other but this has been talked about a lot in the news in in recent months about how wechat has also kind of become this echo chamber for asian conservatism especially amongst recent immigrants and also of the perpetuation of conspiracy theories including this echo chamber of hey like one of our own this guy peter liang is being unfairly prosecuted we need to stick up for him oh also we we think all lives matter. <laughs> and like, so this, this like echo chamber starts to direct these energies in unfortunate directions. Yeah, I think that was one of the things watching the documentary. Like when you actually see the first generation Chinese immigrants standing up for Peter Liang. I think the part that becomes clear is that to a lot of them, like Peter Liang's like their son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Peter Liang's 28. So like they see one of their kids. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I think there is something inherent in the Peter Liang case that made this something to rally behind. But I do also wonder if it also suddenly aligned with a lot of inherent conservative values that these recent immigrants had and their own self-perception as model minorities. Yeah, for sure, yeah. That further inflamed their passions to go into the streets. It had just enough to, um, to question, right? Like, he was like a rookie cop potentially not even properly trained in CPR. Right. There was enough stuff that it wasn't as directly he aimed to do this clearly. That it made it easy for um, both sides to believe that they knew his intention. Yeah. So there are those, like this kind of, this tension between generations. And then to me, like there's an interesting other set. They're like allies. So one guy is this guy named Carlin. He's sort of this old-time Chinatown activist. He, he grew up in Chinatown. He says he's been the victim of police brutality growing up in Chinatown. I'm really curious. They don't really continue to talk to him after things go really haywire with the activism. But his perspective to me was always fascinating. We first meet him when Peter Liang first goes on trial. And he says, I talked to Peter Liang. I know him. My godson and him grew up together. And this perception, like, like Chinatown needs to protect itself. And Chinatown has always had to protect itself. Because Chinatown has historically been a place that has not been treated well by in society. Which to me is different than these like recent immigrants who are like just discovering their own politics, usually from a perspective of privilege. But this Carlin guy, he's not like that. And he becomes like this ally to the more conservative Chinese groups. So there's him. And then there's this other guy who we really see fired up in my other favorite scene in the movie, which is the scene where on one side of the streets are these conservative Chinese 
activists huge, right? They've mobilized. They are hyper-visible, shockingly so. And on the other side of the street, like literally on the other side of the street are protesters for black lives. And then you have this older Chinese-American guy. He's on the Chinese side, but he crosses the street. Yeah. And in the middle of the street has conversations with Black Lives Matter protesters. Not to say you're wrong, but to say, let's try to talk here. Right. The way he talks about it is never from the perspective of Peter Lang is innocent or anything like that. He just wants to ask the question, how do we also acknowledge that anti-Chinese-ness in the DA's office is potentially a thing without undermining the cause of Black Lives Matter? He's at least asking those questions. So I'm fascinated by this guy too. Like if, if there's anybody that's going to bridge the two sides, it's going to be them. And if these two sides don't get bridged, then, then the Asian American cause is doomed. And so I, I look to these two guys with, with a kind of desperate hope. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that scene. At first, when you said it was your favorite scene, I was like, oh my god, that scene was the worst. It's kind of like the climax of the madness. But then I was like, oh, right. <laughs> the film captures these moments of like, let's not just yell at each other from across the street. Let's yell at each other. <laughs> at least in the middle of the street. <laughs> Let's cross the street to yell at each other. But at least like try to figure stuff out. Try to understand. Let's try to see each other. Yeah. To me, this is the parallel scene with the other scene that is my favorite scene, like the Kirby scene. And here we have a Chinese protester who's seeing the black protesters. And like that has to be the start. I don't think they're going to see eye to eye about Peter Liang's case. Because I think that's so many of these disagreements are just... People with different beliefs. I don't even mean beliefs like religious beliefs or beliefs like literally like did he mean to shoot him or did he not mean to shoot him? That's like a fundamental thing they don't agree on, you know? And they might not ever agree on what's fair in this case, but can they agree on other stuff? Yeah, because the thing that both sides care so much about, which is that white supremacy is the problem, that can't be dismantled if black people and Asian people are not working together. Right. So you'll be able to watch Down a Dark Stairwell in April of 2021. But in the meantime, that Q&A that you guys hosted at the San Diego Asian Film Festival was such a fantastic discussion. If you guys can't wait till April, I would encourage you guys to go listen to it. It's on the Pacific Arts Movement Facebook. You should just Google Pacific Arts Movement Down a Dark Stairwell Q&A or something like that. In thinking about like who we wanted to have for the Q&A, and Ursula has told me like she doesn't want to just be the spokesperson for all elements of this movie. Like It would be good to have other people on in a Q&A with her, and I totally agree. So I invited Jesse Mills, who is an ethnic studies professor at the University of San Diego. And I also brought on DJ Cut and Candy, who helps head a group here in San Diego called the Asian Solidarity Collective, which is committed to organizing Asian Americans in support of Black Lives. And I was actually, maybe this speaks to my own ignorance. But I was surprised the extent to which Jesse, but especially Candy, felt really triggered by this movie, uh, specifically around having to see all these conservative Chinese people. Like, it just, it hurts to watch. And I totally get it, because it hurt me too. As an activist, Candy really just wanted to see more images of Asian Americans standing up for um, Akai Gurley's family. So we have to talk about the fact that those are the other characters in this film that we do see organizers in New York City who came out right from the very beginning after the murder happened in the streets to say Asian Americans support the black community when they are rightfully grieving for the death of their own. 
They're in the streets reminding Asian Americans that, hey, when an Asian American person was killed by police in New York City, guess who showed up? It was the black community who showed up on behalf of Asian Americans. And we must do the same here. And I mean, it's true. This film does not have that much of their voice in it. Their voice is in it, and it's an important voice. And it's one that really puts the conservative Asian protesters in a certain kind of context, which is that when these national protests on behalf of Peter Lang started happening, these Asian American activists for Black Lives started to get harassment, like hate mail. They got threats. They were being called race traitors. And things are much worse than being called a race traitor. And how within the Asian American community, this is what we mean by it devolved. These things should not be mutually exclusive. To say we are 100% on the streets marching for Black Lives, at the same time, we are questioning whether the DA's office potentially scapegoated a Chinese person. At some point, it turned into the Chinese-American community saying to other Chinese-Americans, you cannot support black people. That is the ultimate proof of just how bad it got and, and how troubling that kind of activism got and how there are material and bodily consequences of this, namely that there are these organizers who were under peril and who didn't want to do this work anymore. It's emotionally, it's taxing to deal with the most disgusting parts of your own community. I think that kind of speaks to this idea of like don't speak out basically like, don't ask for trouble yeah you see that on both sides right you see that on the conservative side where it's almost like a liberating thing like they're finally able to speak out but on the other side it's like it shows why they don't speak out <laughs> you know what i mean and, it's, and also like i grew up with that like i look at what happened to the asian activists that supported akai girly's family and that's scary to me you know what i mean that's a fear i have from speaking out and just kind of knowing that in general if you're that public as an asian american figure it's very unlikely you're not going to be a target of harassment you know yeah so it shows like how difficult it is i think part of me would have liked to see more but the other side of me also feels like um and and maybe it was because i was looking for it like i definitely always saw asian americans in the the scenes whenever they show the folks protesting asking for um, the indictment of peter liang i was probably subconsciously always looking and i always found asian americans there (laughs) so even though it wasn't direct i feel like that was probably a purposeful choice no i totally felt that (laughs) right and it's sort of like at this moment there better be asian americans there like we need to make ourselves seen and i think all of these portraits are are vital I think, it, I think if this was just a film about Asian-American activists who still alongside Black Lives Matter, like, it may have been a very inspiring film, kind of inspiring film that might have some kind of political utility that we can show to other activists. But in some ways, I feel like that's an easier film to make. I think what makes this film such an impressive feat is the way that she's able to balance, not in a like, politically balanced way, but in a narratively balanced and ethically balanced, and also like a balance in terms of honoring the inherent difficulty and contradictions of Asian American community organizing altogether. And it's all here in this movie. That's why this, to me, is the most essential Asian American documentary in decades. Yeah, I think she just does a great job laying it out so we can see it, right? In the film, there's this idea of bubbles and you have to see each other's humanity. What makes this so powerful is that these people in the so-called other bubble 
could have been and should have been our allies all along. That's why to me this is more interesting than just like, oh, like blue states and red states need to hold hands and like figure out a vision for America. It's like, to me, this is even more tragic because these are folks who, in another way of looking at this, could all have just been part of the same Asian American front to combat injustice in the United States. But instead it turned into something else. It turned into like warring factions. But it's worth talking about this because like this, this is this is Asian America too, and it talks about Asian America in its cross generations, um, across different ways of thinking about identity and identity politics and representation, and what could be more essential questions to ask of Asian America now. And I come back to that scene where Kirby is talking about being careful about using the term model minority, because it's in a moment like that that's a reminder that. Asian American studies is so important. It's not important just for college age Asians who are trying to find themselves, which, you know, like we all kind of went through that to some extent. But it's also important because this is the story of all of us, all, all Americans, like anybody who's buying into some kind of notion of racial progress or social justice needs to, needs to take into account Asian American studies. But it's also what Kirby says afterwards. She says, we need to be politically sharp. She's saying this to other folks who are in the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, how do we be politically sharp so that we are allies, but we are effective, so that what we say has bite to it? And Asian American activists, no matter how you are aligning yourself, you have to be politically sharp. You have to think about how do we galvanize all of these kind of energies, both the energies of Asian American activism that started in the 1960s, right, that was inherently third worldist and interracial like that we've been talking about throughout the season, but also the Asian Americans that came post-1964 that include new immigrants with their own sort of political voices and also political baggage that they could take from their previous countries. How do we conjure that kind of national passion in a way that is politically sharp and that will not just play into the hands of power and that can ultimately hold police accountable and to dismantle white supremacy? Yeah, I think no matter what you think of the pro-Liang side, it's still interesting to see how people who really felt like they had no power came to understand that they could have a voice. <laughs> I mean, people have different opinions about how cool that is. But you know what I mean? Like owning your voice and understanding that you can have a voice is powerful for Asian Americans who, like we've been saying, have been so silent. So like watching the film grappling with kind of the pain of having to see something that we hold dear, namely like this notion of Asian American politics, kind of watch it shake at its roots. It hurts. And at some point, I just found myself kind of numb, numbed to it um, and just like emotionally weakened. <laughs> it, it did, like, I don't know how hopeful it made me. But then at the end, we get a series of still images of Grace Lee Boggs, of Yuri Kochiyama, of other kind of pioneers of Asian American activism, where it was very clear that their activism was one that was hand in hand in the streets with black people and folks of, of color from across the spectrum. And there's something about that moment that for me was such a, a much needed release, a much needed feeling like we can do this. This is, act, this is what we're, we're, we're built upon. This is what it looks like. Like it's, these are images that are proof that it is possible and that we don't have to just feel like we're stuck somewhere now, even though 2020 is very different from the 1960s and 70s. And I think seeing those images, we didn't design it this way, but seeing these images from the past in succession, feeling tied to the possibility of interracial solidarity, 
that gave me hope, and I hope that that is a similar to the sort of inspiration that our season has done. Because in some ways, like our nine episodes before this, all in their own ways, are individual snapshots into possibilities of interracial, whether it's solidarity or reckoning, or I guess shenanigans <laughs> of and love or love. Yeah, right. I hope that puts it all in a certain kind of relief that is useful. How do you feel now that we've actually completed the season in 2020? Oh, this season required a different kind of work for us, too. Like, yeah. Our other seasons were just like, oh, I like that movie. Let's talk about that one that we remember liking. I feel good about the 10 that we came up with. But at the same time, the limitations of the 10 also show us how many more stories need to be told. Yeah, and it makes me wonder if... Asian American filmmakers who may also be grappling with these very issues that have been really brought to the fore in 2020, like maybe they'll make films differently or they'll think about the worlds of their films differently. So we'll see. I feel like there's like an academic paper coming up in like the next five, 10 years that analyzes how the events of 2020 have influenced Asian American filmmakers. (laughs) Oh, there are going to be many book series all about 2020. I'm sure a couple of them will be related to Asian America. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm grateful to you, Brian, because I don't think I've seen any of my friends (laughs) this entire year. But um, having kind of this check-in to talk about Asian American interracial cinema makes me feel like I'm keeping in touch with my friends via you. (laughs) Well, hopefully 2021 we'll run into each other at a film festival or birthday party or something. Thank you for coming along with us for this exploration and have a happy new year and we'll see you in 2021. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Talis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sat School. Class dismissed. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, We've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation. The good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.